Welcome to Love Curvy Yoga, the podcast that's all about the intersection between yoga and body acceptance. Today, my guest is Hannah Blank, a woman after my own heart who, as she says in her bio, joyfully spans the town-gown divide as well as the mind-body split. She's the author of several books, including one of my faves, The Unapologetic Fat Girl's Guide to Exercise and Other Incendiary Acts. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to start off just asking you about your relationship with your body as a young person. What was it like? Um, you know, I think that it's always really complicated as a young person. You get a lot of messages from the outside, but really um, I, I was kind of saved from a lot of the kind of horrendous psychic pain that I, that I hear from a lot of other uh, people who grew up fat. Uh, because I, I started working as a professional musician. I, I trained as a classical singer mm-hmm. at the age of seven. Wow. So I had this other life, you know, where um, I was valued for other things that I could do and other things that my body could do. And mm-hmm. that was really uh, much, more, uh, much more important, much more central to how I felt about myself as I grew up, as I was a young person. I mean, yeah, there were the typical complications and I got teased and you know, the usual crap that happens to people. Um, but there was, you know, but that was never the sum total of my life or my experience of my body. Mm. There was this other context in which, you know, yeah, I was this little fat kid, but I was also this little fat kid with this fantastic voice who was able to do all of these musical things. So um, it kind of balanced it out in a way. Yeah, it sounds like singing gave you a way into embodiment in some ways well it gave me a, a route into a, a way to exist in the world where i was judged on other things mm-hmm. um i mean classical singing tends to be both it, it, it is of course physical singing is, is a very physical act right. but classical music uh, performance is also very much you know very cerebral and um very much about you know your your technique and your ability to perform and interpret and uh, pay attention and do all of those things that you have to do that's pretty intensive. Um, so, and that I was very good at and I was very naturally good at them. Mm. Um, so I was not, you know, for instance, it, it didn't matter as much if I was picked last for kickball in my sort of little, my little nine year old emotional world because kickball schmickball, I've got a rehearsal <laughs> to go to. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Not your top priority. <laughs> yeah, really? Okay, you can go and play kickball. I'm okay with that. Right. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and did you continue with singing? Uh, yeah, I, um, I was a professional singer until I was 30. Mm. And how did that change? Did that kind of still give you a way to be in your body as you continued to through your childhood and into adulthood? Well, I mean, in terms of really being in my body and really sort of coming to terms with what living in my body was, I had to figure that out as an adult, Yeah, um, which I think most folks do just because being in the world as an adult is so different from being in the world as a child and your body gets judged in very different ways, notably, you know, in terms of sexual attraction and who's attracted to you and sort of the politics of sex and 
how we tend to judge people's bodies and the worth of, of human beings based on, if you'll pardon my French, their fuckability. Mm-hmm. Um, and their, their fuckability according to a very particular rubric. Right. Um, and that, you know, for very good reasons, doesn't apply to people under the age of puberty. Right. So I think that one of the reasons that so many of us really um, beat our heads against that wall as we become adults is simply because the rules change. The rules of play completely, you know, upend. Yeah, and we don't, well, maybe not, this isn't true for everyone, but I think for most of us, no one has that conversation with us. You know, we sort of have to figure it out as we go along. Yeah, well, you know, we're a very sex-negative, very repressive culture in many ways. Mm-hmm. All, you know, we have that wonderful Western paradox where um, everything has to be sexy, but we're not allowed to talk about, you know, the, the real nitty-gritty of sexuality and how we experience it. Right. So, and we're certainly never allowed to talk about sexuality in the ways that it's used as a tool to control people's lives and police their bodies and, you know, sort of put people on this schedule of worth. Right. Yeah. And this shows up in your research and work, too. You're bringing this conversation in, which I love. Um, So I did a master's degree in English, and I was looking at um, sort of how academics can work as activists. And I felt this real um, difficulty in sort of navigating that line between academia and the non-academic word, for lack of a better way to say that. Um, And I am so inspired by how you do that in your work. And I'd love to hear more about how you kind of found yourself in that middle ground and how you navigate it. Because I think that's related to what you were just saying. Yeah. Well, I, my philosophy is that if you don't see an opening that fits what you want to do, you, you just drill one through the Mm -hmm. wall. Um, Because that's really, I find that the most interesting questions are in the intersections. Yeah. Um, it's very easy in academia to do the same kind of work that everybody else does. It's the same thing as a writer. Um, it's the same thing really as an activist. Um, everybody, everybody is always happy to see more of the thing that they've already seen and that they know they like. Um, the, the, the famous line of Abraham Lincoln's when he was asked to review a book whose title unfortunately has escaped me. Um, what he wrote was the people who like this sort of thing will find that this is the sort of thing they like. Mm. And um, there is an awful lot of that in academia, in, in writing, you know, literary circles and also in activism. There are a lot of people who they find a niche and they stick with it. And that has value. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it has great value, that kind of persistent driving effort at a particular goal, at a particular subject. Um, but to, from, for me personally, in terms of my own fulfillment in doing the work, the, inter- the really interesting questions are in the places where things overlap, where things tra- you know, sort of overflow their boundaries, where things intersect. Um, so that's where I've sort of pushed to do my work, and it's why I have a very strange career path. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know there there aren't many people who spend thirty years of their lives as, as a professional musician, spend fifteen years writing books, and then decide finally after having you know written and worked as a professional historian for a number of years that you know oh well you know it looks like it's finally time for me to go and get my PhD so that I can you know 
apply for the big research grants and things like that that you have to have a PhD to apply for. Right. So um, it's not. Um, it's also difficult. Um, the the flip side of that, um, you know, the the value and the excitement of doing work that tr- spills over the boundaries and goes into the intersections is that um, you are leaving the categories that people are comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And um, and it can be really tricky to convince them that, you know, coloring outside the lines can be useful. Right. Yeah, because instead of that quote that you shared, people liking what they already like, it's like you're pushing on both of those groups of people a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's um, that's a great deal of what I do is to say, you know, it, I feel a little bit sometimes like the Amazon.com recommending algorithm. If you liked this, you'll also like the history of the prune. Um, but in my case, I, I happen to believe that I have a slightly more, a slightly keener sense of what is true there than the Amazon algorithm does. Um, and because I, because I'm able to connect the dots for people and I'm able to sort of say, so, you know, you've got this interest in, let's say sex, um, as so many of us do and on having a good sex life and how does that connect to how you live in your body and what your body does for you? And how does that connect to how you move your body and what that does for you? Um, whereas somebody who's just looking for, you know, basically how to get laid might not think to connect that to, you know, how do you move your body? Yeah. Let's have that take us into, I want to explore that a little bit, but let's hear a little first about um, what inspired you to write The Unapologetic Fat Girl's Guide to Exercise, because I think that's such a great and brilliant book. Well, the way that I, the way I tend to write books um, is that I think of a book that I really would like to read, um, Mm. and I go to the library and I look for it, and it doesn't exist, so I write it. (laughs) That's a good uh, algorithm, as you said. (laughs) Um, it's, you know, it's, it is a kind of a, a, a dangerous, I guess is the word, um, way to choose your topics because there's not a lot of precedent. And then you have the unenviable task of trying to persuade publishers that no, 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 really, I'm not the only person in the world who wants to read this book. Right. Just because nothing like it actually, you know, exists out there doesn't mean that there aren't other people who want to actually read this. Um, but that's how it happens. Yeah. So what, how is this related to your good body manifesto? Um, well, the good body manifesto is a project that has had a number of different forms and has not actually been published. Mm-hmm. Um, I re- I believe that there is, we're getting to a moment in time where um, we have a lot of different Um, activist movements and a lot of different um, movements around bodily difference and around the acceptance and the integration of bodily difference that come at it from a lot of different perspectives. And they're all very valuable. They're all doing really exciting and valuable work. And they also tend to be very siloing and very isolating. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very hard to have those intersectional conversations when you're doing activist work. Um, and, you know, I, I think one of the things we see in, on the Internet, and particularly in the fat activist Internet, is evidence that those conversations have a hard time holding too many variables at one time. That it's hard, for instance, to talk about being 
being fat, but also being Latina and poor and disabled at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's hard to talk about the fact that if you are a fat black woman, you go through the world with a different experience of your body and with other people experiencing your body differently than when you go through the world as a fat white woman or as a fat transgender person or whatever you have. That the, the, All of these variables change the picture a little bit yeah. and, or possibly a lot. And what I want to do with the Good Body Manifesto is to talk about the ways that all bodies that are considered deviant, and I hope you can hear the giant air quotes I'm putting around (laughs) the word, um, the way that all bodies that are considered deviant outside of this very narrow, straight, young, white, able-bodied, middle-class body with no evidence of disease or disability... um, the way all of those bodies are subject to forces of control and policing and scapegoating and all kinds of other ways that we make those bodies less and less valuable and less valid. Um, and I, cause I do think I've spent a lot of time, you know, looking at these issues and talking to people. And I really do think that there are underlying principles behind all kinds of body-based oppression that connect us, even though the particulars of our experience may be very different. Right. I'm definitely hearing what you're talking about earlier, finding that intersection and exploring that in what you're doing there. So the good body manifesto is my, um, ongoing really since, you know, I haven't, haven't sold the book yet. Um, (laughs) Uh, it's it's an ongoing effort to try to articulate um, those underlying dynamics and to identify some of these principles that that keep all keep so many of us not all of us certainly but keep so many of us from believing that our bodies are good. Right. Um, and I take as sort of my point of departure. I mean, that if your body makes you possible, then it is kind of by definition a good body. It's doing its job. Mm. Um, and so how do you deal with the fact that there are so many different layered, complicated ways that we get told that our bodies are not good? Right. What do you wish all exercisers Exercise. knew about good bodies? That if you've got one, um, it's, it's already good. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, in the same way that I think, you know, it's people- funny how easy it is to miss that though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we all want, it's, it's the sort of grass is always greener on the other side. We always want the things that we can't have. You know, if you have curly hair, you want straight hair. If you've got straight hair, you want curly hair. Right. If you're fat, you want to be thin. If you're thin, you probably think your legs are too skinny, whatever the hell it is. (laughs) Um, and it's, we're, you know, we're conditioned to that as well as it being human nature. I mean, capitalism, consumer capitalism depends very, very strongly on our belief, um, very carefully inculcated belief that we are sort of definitionally incomplete unless we're striving to acquire something. Yeah. Um, and so I, yeah, I really think that, you know, ex- and exercise tends to, you know, sort of become a kind of capitalism. 
um, in that way that, you know, sort of if you can exercise more, then you will get closer to this perfection ideal, whatever you've got in your head. Um, and that that's the way it should work, that you should be able to buy perfection, bodily perfection with exercise. Um, and as you and I both know, um, DNA is a tougher customer than that. <laughs> right. Um, and so are a lot of other things, a lot of things about, you know, your environment and your upbringing and your medical conditions and all of these other things that affect the ways that bodies are shaped and sized and the ways that they behave and the kinds of things they will and won't do. Um, that a lot of it is in fact out of your control. It's not as simple as putting the sort of the exercise shaped coin into the vending machine and turning the knob. Right. Um, and so I really, yeah, I really want people to understand that if you are, if you're able to move, you know, if you're, if you have a body period, full stop, let alone whether or not you're able to move that body, your body's already doing a very important job, which is that it's making you possible. It's already doing a good job at that. Um, it may not be doing the perfect ideal job in every single way that you might imagine it could do. And yeah, that's life. Right. And that's changing for all of us. I feel like all the time. And it will change. I mean, I, as I get older, I'm 45 now. And as I get older, one of the things that it keep, I keep wanting to tell people is no matter how perfect your body is now or no, no matter how close to whatever ideal of perfection you may be able to get your body to be, um, age is coming for you too. Right. Um, no one gets out of this without having to go through that experience. And God willing, you live long enough to get old. Right. Uh, age is coming for you too. Um, you know, age-related conditions, various kinds of degenerative diseases, the different ways that bodies deposit fat as they get older, gray hair, wrinkles, things that droop and sag and move in ways that they never moved when you were 23. You know, are they going to move in different ways when you're 43? I guarantee you it doesn't matter what your body fat percentage is because bodies change as you age. And ultimately, for many people, if not most, bodies age into varying degrees of disability. Mm -hmm. um, be it something as minor as some, a little bit of arthritis, that still will impact the way your, your body works and the way you perceive your body and also the way other people perceive your body. It, it is coming for you. So you might as well get ahead of the game as far as I'm concerned, and understand that your body is doing a very important job. Your body is a good body because it makes you possible. The rest is going to change and is going to transform your experience in various different ways over the course of your life. Right. Yeah, I often will talk about how when we can be less surprised by that, when we can expect that bodies change because that's what bodies do, the easier it is to kind of stay with it and not go into that negative space where you're beating yourself up for something that is aging. Like you said, that's coming for all of us. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a, there's a long history to this, which I could bore you about at great length. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I work on as an academic, but there is a history about the perfectibility of the body. Mm -hmm. And it is a very specifically North American and U S narrative about bodies and how we theorize they can be managed intentionally. Um, and that, that is a reflection of your sort of moral worth and your effectiveness as a human being. And there's all that other stuff that gets tied up in it. Um, 
and we really we really love that fantasy that our bodies are intentionally perfectible. Do you find it's related to the myth of the American dream? Like we can supposedly pull ourselves up from our bootstraps, same with our bodies. Oh, absolutely. It's all, that is tied in very much tied in together. And Mm -hmm. it's a very, um, it's a very Protestant notion. Um, it's, uh, there's a British historian named E.P. Thompson who's done some brilliant, brilliant work on the Protestant work ethic and sort of how does the Protestant work ethic form and how do we, how do we as Americans inherit this notion that um, we can create anything we want to if only we put our minds to it and work hard enough. Um, and that idea, you know, whether it's about money and material gain, whether that's about, you know, making the perfect religious community, um, whether that's about, you know, salvation and creating your life in a way so that, you know, there's no chance that you won't, you know, you won't go to heaven when you die, whether that's about perfecting your body in one way or another. That's all part of that same narrative. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense that we would, well, not we would, but the structure would um, give us that in the body too. Mm-hmm. What? And it happens to be really convenient. It also makes a lot of money for a lot of people. You know? it's, right. it's, it's part of a big system, and it's all it all gets folded in together. Yeah, yeah, a lot of money. What do you recommend for people who um, teach any form of fitness or hold space for that in some way to help make space for the idea that all bodies are good bodies? Um, well, I think one one of the foundational things is that you don't presume you know what anybody is doing there in that room. Mm. Um, you don't presume you know what their goals are. Don't presume you know what their history is. Don't presume you know anything about what got them into that room. Don't presume anything about what they want to take away. Yeah. Um, be with them there in that moment. Try to you know help them move in whatever ways that they are able to do. And don't lay your own agenda on it. Mm. That could be a motto for so many things. <laughs> yeah, I, and I think it's really, really difficult. Yeah. Like fitness instructors on the whole, um, you know, get very heavily indoctrinated into the perfect, the whole perfectibility uh, thing and that way that that gets tied up with health and that we can magically, and if we do everything right, we can magically have perfect, healthy bodies that never age and will never die and will all live forever. Right. <laughs> uh, as we all know, and this has worked well for many people, um, mm-hmm. clearly. Right. You know, we have all these immortal people tottering around. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I think, I think it's really hard. I mean, the culture is, the culture is, both the, the larger culture, the macro culture that you live in as an American and the micro culture that you work within as a fitness professional are both trying to tell you not to take people as they come, right? but to help to try to turn them into something better. Do you have um, resources you recommend um, for, pe- for fitness people, yoga teachers who might be listening to dig a little deeper into that? Obviously your book is a great resource. Um, yeah, my, my book, um, I actually recommend that people read Health at Every Size by Linda Bacon, mm. um, which I think is really just sort of foundational and so important philosophically Yeah. Um, in terms of informing any kind of body practice. Um, 
I also really, I just encourage people to uh, read some of the, you know, some of the basics of sort of fat acceptance literature. Um, you know, read Le- Leslie Kinzel, read Marilyn Wan, you know, read Kay Harding. Um, because if you don't have a sense of what the issues are that people are bringing into the room with them, um, then there's no way that you can cope with them when they come up and they will. Right. Yeah. You need that before you can get into anything sort of more logistical. Yeah. And I also think that, um, with movement, and I know this is really very hard for a lot of people in, um, disciplines where form and technique are very important. And yoga is certainly one of those, um, is to remember that, um, form and technique are not important in the same way to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I have a deep empathy with that as a singer, as a classically trained singer. I personally think anybody who wants to sing should sing and whether or not you have training shouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, as somebody who is intensively trained as a particular type of singer where technique and production are incredibly important and they're very exacting standards, it can be very hard for me internally to just let that go. Mm, right. And to say, are they, are they doing what they want to do here? Are they having fun doing it? Is it producing a positive outcome for them? That's really what's important. Not, are they doing it the way I was taught to do it? Does it look like the, the photos that I use for reference? Does it look like, you know, is it all lined up right? Is the alignment correct, quote unquote? That may really not matter. Yeah. I so relate to that as a yoga teacher because I've felt I've come to the point in my teaching where as long as the person's safe, I don't really care what they're doing in terms of like how it looks or the alignment or any of that. But I do have those moments, like you were just saying, where I'm like, is this okay? But well, yeah, as my grandmother said about raising her children, if there's no flames and no visible blood, yes, it's okay. (laughs) Um, I'm going to make a bumper sticker out of that. It's, it's really true. Um, I don't think that you gain a lot by pushing an orthodoxy on people, especially when you've got people for whom showing up to group exercise is really hard. Right. Um, I am not actually a fan of group exercise. I never have been. I just, I want to go and be able to move my body and have the entire world ignore me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, it is with, it is with great reticence um, and difficulty that I occasionally haul my ass into a group exercise class. Um, and I usually do it for a change of pace. I actually have a very good friend, um, Stacey Beth Schulman here in Atlanta, who's a wonderful restorative yoga teacher. Mm, yeah. And I take classes with her occasionally um, because, I, because I know her and because I know, you know, how she runs her classes and that even someone like me who's like totally, you know, almost allergic to group exercise <laughs> can find a way to coexist with that vibe. Yeah. Um, but I, but I can't in yoga classes where I, that I've tried in the past where I've gone in and found that, you know, the teacher really has an agenda about, you know, what everything's supposed to look like and what kinds of bodies are quote yoga bodies and, and yeah. which is bullshit. Yeah. And we, and you know, and we know it on a sort of intellectual level. But sometimes, when you're the inexperienced newbie who's had to psych yourself into walking into that room to begin with, um, having that 
additional baggage get thrown at you is prohibitively hard. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of ideas out there that there is a certain yoga body. Well, and I think that that, you know, that's a, it's a complicated thing. And I, I can't really speak to all of where it comes from, but certainly the industry of yoga clothes right. uh, and who makes yoga clothes for what size bodies um, has uh, more than a little bit to do with it. Mm-hmm. I think that I think the, the first thing that pops into my mind when I think about yoga bodies is yoga pants. Right. And the, you know, and sort of the Lulu lemon or whatever the hell it's called, you know, with these tiny sizes. Yeah. Right, because if you can't even find something to wear, what gives you the message that it's something that's possible for you? Yeah, exactly. I'm all about my old navy pants. (laughs) Um, So one kind of final thing I wanted to talk to you about um, as we wrap up here is this through line that you have brought into our conversation and that is in your work um, that I see at least, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, obviously, about um, bodies and identities and getting to claim both of those unapologetically. Your work covers such interesting areas from sexuality and consent to fat exercise and sex. And, um, I'd love to hear about those intersections you find there. Well, it really, um, as an historian and really also as an activist, one of the sort of guiding questions that is lies behind all the work that I do is, you know, we are we clearly find ourselves in a big mess. Um, how did we get there? Mm. Is the question, and what factors contribute to our getting there? And, and it's sort of how do you how do we get out um, right. of that mess? How do you take a situation that is fundamentally foundationally screwed up, identify the things that are screwing it up, and then figure out how to move forward um, from there? And um, you know, for instance, I, I've written books on the history of virginity and the history of heterosexuality um, as as a sexual orientation and a label. And one of the you know one of the reasons that I do that is you know here are things that are you know incredibly socially potent, incredibly politically potent, um, and we we put a lot of stock into them and what they say about us as human beings and what they say about our bodies and how our bodies work and whether they work the right way or the wrong way. And, um, and I'm really invested in figuring out, okay, so, you know, how did it get to be the way it is? How did it get to be this weird? And I really feel very much the same way about, um, other issues is sort of more colloquial sort of issues about sexuality and about the body as well. You know, when I wrote big, big love, um, the first edition that came out in 2000, in my real guiding question there was, you know, how have we gotten to this place where fat bodies are considered sort of sexually unspeakable? How did that happen? And what do we do about it? What tools can we find to help us sort of take that apart, dismantle that, look at what the parts are and figure out some better parts to put in there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I like to think that I've done, at least to some degree, the same thing with movement. Is to say, okay, so here's this crappy situation that we found it, found ourselves in. Um, what are the things that are creating this crappy situation? And how much of that can we disassemble and rebuild into something that works better? 
Right. That how did we get here piece is so important because I love how you're breaking down what can feel like these concepts that have like come down from the mountain or whatever to say like, no, this isn't actually how it always was. There's things that are loading it. Or even more importantly, I think actually is this is not the only way things can be. Mm. Um, Yeah. Because the, the, the argument from, you know, arguing from precedent is one thing and saying, well, it, it wasn't always this way. And therefore we have an excuse to go back to something we used to do is actually really limiting mm-hmm. compared to saying we have done it a bunch of different ways. Right. Which tells us that it is possible to do it a bunch of different ways. Right. Which yeah. tells us that there may in fact be ways that we haven't yet tried to do it. Mm-hmm. And what do those look like? It opens the door for us. Yeah. And I find that a much more exciting question. I mean, I like having the historical background, um, you know, as an historian, just because I find it fascinating, but also because I think having a long view historically um, can really help, you know, okay, which paths not to go down. Right. Right. We've been there. We don't have to repeat that. Yeah, we did. We know what that looked like. It sucked. Let's not do it again. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It seems like it opens that door for more creativity. Yeah, I think that um, reminding ourselves that as human beings, the the limits to what we can do in terms of how we organize our lives and you know lead our day to day is re- the, the limits of that are the limits of what we can imagine. Mm. Um, and what you can imagine is a realm that you know get that that sort of that playpen, that sandbox gets populated by all of the things that you learn, both, you know, people around you, the, you know, whatever historical background you have, um, your experiences going through life, the experiences you see other people having. There's a lot that kind of gets thrown into the sandbox there. And I am all for people putting all of that stuff together in new and unusual and unprecedented ways and, you know, and see if it works. Right. It might, it might not. But, you know, what do you have to lose? I mean, if what you've got now kind of, you know, is, is not the most functional and beautiful version that you feel you could possibly have, then where, where's the harm in experimenting with some other things? Right. Well, and it feels like you would probably at least find a piece of something, even if it's not the whole thing. Yeah, I, you might, you know, and I, I talk about that a lot in Unapologetic Fat Girls Guide to Exercise a lot, actually, you know, sort of, you know, feeling your way through it and going, well, this part feels good. The rest of it is crap. So what can I do with this part that feels good? Like, I love to swim. The The locker room is horrible. Right. How do you, so how do you get from, you know, parking lot to pool minus the horrible in the locker room? Right. your next question. And that can look like a whole bunch of different things. Yep. But I'm really all for, you know, just assume, not assuming that what you're handed is what you ha- is the only thing you have to work with, but, you know, that you can imagine other possibilities and you can make it go. Yeah, oh, I'm with you on that for sure. Well, I don't want to take more of your time. I really appreciate you having this conversation. It was wonderful. My pleasure. And what is the best way for people to connect with you and your great work? Um, well, I have a website, as seemingly does everyone, <laughs> um, and it's hannablank.com, H-A-N-N-E-B-L-A-N-K.com. Um, so you can find me there. Um, I am, I'm on the Facebook. You can look me up as Hannah Blank. I'm, I'm easily findable. I am also Hannah Blank on Twitter. 
Um, and uh, I post in various places like that at various degrees of frequency. So, and of course, your 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 friendly local independent bookstore will be happy to order you any of my titles, um, and they can look them up for you. Um, and you feel free to buy as many as you like. <laughs> I them all. Collect the set. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my Hana Blink set. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. We will link to all of that so people can find it easily. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>